You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is uh, Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with J.C. DeSwan, who teaches at Princeton University. It's also a partner at Cornwall Capital. And as the author, just recently of this book called Seeking Virtue in Finance, Contributing to Society in a Conflicted Industry. So JC, the title Seeking Virtue in Finance, I guess the main question that most people would have is how much seeking do you have to do before you find some virtue in finance? And you take a virtue ethics lens to the profession of, of finance and the idea of virtues, one virtue is to do your job really, really well, I suppose. And But if Alistair McIntyre is right, then being really, really good in the finance profession is like being a really, really good thief. You know, it's, it's not what we would normally think of as a virtuous life. But I think you're, you're trying to suggest that, that you can find virtue in a life as a finance professional. So it must be more than simply being really, really, really good at what you do. What motivated this inquiry? And then maybe we can talk a bit about how it even makes sense to start teaching these things to, I think you teach freshmen a course on ethics and, and finance. I'm always thinking, wow, you know, I, I've taught this course on financial ethics to financial engineers who are much further along in their career and they understand a bit about finance, but freshmen, I mean, is there an advantage to kind of getting them before they actually know what finance is, or is it better to kind of come in after somebody's already learned a bit about finance? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks so much for having me on your podcast, Craig. So there are a lot of topics you raised here, but let me start with freshmen. There's no one I'd rather teach than freshmen, particularly in the fall of their freshman year, mm. because that's when they're the most excited and they're energized and they're incredibly curious. And so for the last 12 years, I've taught this as a freshman seminar. I also teach other courses. So I, I teach the whole gamut because I teach seniors and grad students in the spring, and I also teach at a business school mm -hmm. at Cambridge. But to me, freshmen are the most interesting to teach because I can learn more from teaching freshmen than anyone else. So there's something pretty self-interested here. You know, I'd be curious about your experience, but when I teach, say, MBA students or MFIN students, in some ways, it's a little transactional. Like they want mm -hmm. the knowledge, they want the skill set, and it's almost like training peers in a way at a work site, younger peers, people are new to the industry, but the questions tend to be very targeted, very practical. The freshmen tend to ask fundamental first principle questions. And that's what makes you rethink everything often, right? So it's been a huge privilege for me to do that. I get to pick my students. They apply to be in the class. I'm not necessarily only focused on students who are interested in being in finance, but I, I generally want that diversity of views. I want like half of the students who are going to be those who, since they were 12, they woke up early to watch CNBC and they're trading their own portfolio and they're really gung-ho about the end and they know the language and all that. And I want the, the students who are super distrustful of the industry and don't believe that it's a force for good. And my fundamental belief is that it's a force for good, but that to some extent it's deviated from that over the years. And so I do think that teaching them early is helpful because frankly, a lot of the case studies that we do and a lot of the courses case study base resonates as well with first year undergrads as it does with grad students. Now, to your point about why did I engage in this project? Why did I start teaching this and, and why did I write the book? My entry into the industry as an investment professional really is from the point of view of economic development. I studied economic development as a grad student, and I was always interested in this concept of finance as a tool for prosperity and as a way to spur economic development. And so I was in grad school in the late 90s, and that was at a point where we were just starting to see research in that area. Because prior to that, finance didn't really figure at all in the economic development conversation. It was seen as part of the plumbing, but it was seen as kind of peripheral to it. And then you have a few academics in the 1990s, one from the World Bank, one at Brown, 
but started delving into what are the externalities of finance. And you start realizing that there are huge positive externalities, mm -hmm. like positive effects of finance. And that really is what spurred me to delve into it. And I wanted to test it out. And so after grad school and I, I worked for a few years in management consulting, I moved to the buy side and I wanted to invest in emerging markets to test it out. And I think it took me a week or two to realize that doing long short equity in Asia would literally have zero impact on these economies and, and societies. And, and we were trading, this is really the secondary market, we're trading equities with other hedge funds and the company's kind of far removed from this. And certainly these communities are far removed from it. That spurred me to try to understand this topic better. I'd always had a passion for teaching, so I created this course. So that was my pathway towards this. And now I should mention the book itself, I think, came from a conversation I had during the first semester that I taught the ethics course with one of my undergrads. Halfway through the semester, one of the students comes to me and says, why is it that when we talk about ethics and finance, why is it that we always focus on unethical behavior, and bad outcomes, and why not also focus on constructive behavior and perhaps even inspiring individuals? And I thought about it and I thought, wow, yeah, that is true. We never really focus on that. And surely there must be some learnings from it. So I set out to look for that literature, could not find it. And so I thought, wow, I love this idea of learning from others. And so I, I went out and I researched ethical role models. And this was a seven-year project in a sense. And that became a silo of this course, a small silo, but an important one. Mm -hmm. And I eventually wrote this book and the idea was to write the narratives for these individuals. So there are like 60 individuals and firms that I write about, but also really tease out lessons from them. And, and what I did is tease out a framework of what a virtuous life might look like in the finance industry, but not being naive about it, being fully cognizant of the huge constraints that you have when you work in the finance industry, the enormous pull from incentives, extraordinary incentives in many corners of the finance industry. And so try to understand this and put it together as a, a little bit of a roadmap as much for me, frankly, as for my students and for anyone in the industry. When I taught this course on financial ethics and regulation, we spent all of our time talking about the bad actors. We talk about all the yeah. Jerome Curvilles and the Lehman Brothers yeah. and all the behaviors that were, well, ethical and illegal would go back and forth. And it was all about how you design bad incentives and you get bad outcomes. And we never talked about virtue. We never talked about the good life. And it's weird yeah. because you mentioned, you say you're a finance professional, but the word professional has a distinct meaning. And I'm a lawyer and we have a course called yeah. professional responsibility. And there, there is a sense that when you're a lawyer, it's not simply about ambulance chasing or whatever. It's, there's this idea that you are contributing in some way. It's a noble profession in some ways. At least some people want to believe that. And the outside view of lawyers is very different. But, you know, the inside view is that there is this nobility in being a lawyer and, and that you make sacrifices to be a lawyer and that there are these ethical principles and guidelines that you're supposed to follow. But it's enforced by a bar association and there's disbarment as a sanction, which kind of reinforces these norms. And you have similar kind of professional responsibility in other occupations like architecture and even in journalism, yeah. even though they didn't have a, a way of disbarring you, right? there's this notion of professional responsibility. Why do you suppose finance has not had a coherent notion? I mean, FINRA has exams that you have to take and you have to have a license and so forth, but it's really about knowing the rules and less about cultivating yeah. a, a sense of public service. Why do you suppose that is? You mentioned in your book that when you ask people who are professionals, what they think of in terms of their public contribution, they're often caught off guard and, and are somewhat speechless, you mentioned. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's that been, to me, an interesting observation. Over the years, I've hosted many finance professionals, many fund managers in my class. And one of the questions I love to ask is, how do you contribute to society through your work? Like, in what way is it helpful to society? And I don't mean it in a way of trying to put them on the spot. And it's more to tease out, like, what are the positive aspects of what they do? And interestingly, for a profession that is, so 
here I'm, I'm talking specifically about fund managers. Mm-hmm. So for a class of professionals that tends to be really cerebral and that tends to be well-read and that there, I mean, in my experience, and maybe it's anecdotal, but over the last dozen years or so, they're often stumped. And then they'll revert to, well, we make markets more efficient. There's some truth to that, of course. We serve our customers and our customers are helpful to society. So they'll pinpoint, well, like some of our clients are, are research institutions and endowments and schools and so on. And we help them generate excess returns. We help them generate alpha. But I've never been convinced of these answers for different reasons. I mean, one of them is that certainly making market efficient is helpful, but as an individual, it's hard to really argue that you're having a real impact here because the impact is so diffuse, right? So in and of itself, like, I I think it's a little bit hard to justify. Now, serving your customers and to your earlier point in the question, in my mind, there's no higher mandate. Right? This is our professional mandate because we're in the business of serving customers. So there's nothing that's more important than serving your customers' interests with their interest in mind. Now, what I find in the industry in general is the challenge is that that's often defined a little too narrowly, mm-hmm. which is only serve your customer without any consideration for what the implications might be on the rest of the world. Right. And interestingly, the industry has made some forays there and some progress in recent years. And with the ESG revolution that's underway, there's been more thought devoted to that. But in general, I find that it's not necessarily like people are bad actors. It's more like they have too narrowly focused lens. Now, to your point about why is it that we see a little bit less of that oversight in a way in the finance industry? It's not so much oversight. It's almost like peer pressure or peer incentive. I'm not sure why that's the case. So there's the CFA association, which I think does a lot and has done a lot in recent years to move in that direction, but you don't see it as much. And my biggest, I think my entry point into this topic of ethics and finance is this idea that finance tends to be played as a complex game with its own rules. Mm-hmm. And as long as you play within these well-defined, narrowly defined rules, then it's a force for good. And finance professionals, by and large, tend to be a little unquestioning of the fact that what is good for them is good for their clients, and what is good for their client is good for them. And then as a result, it's good for society. But we know that that's not the case. And certainly, you know, the global financial crisis is a great example of why, you know, if you leave it on its own, it's going to create problems. You mentioned that at one point in intellectual history, people thought in terms of productive and unproductive economic activity. And of course, you could think of this as a Marxian view or as a bunch of different perspectives that endorse this division. And then you point out how the marginal revolution kind of eliminated that division. I think there are plenty of people today that would embrace that division. And there are plenty of people that think the financialization of the world is, is not a good thing and that there's productive real economy behavior. And then there's kind of financial rearrangement of the chips. I hope we can get into that a little bit, but when we go back to this idea of professional responsibility, there seems to be two components. If I think from the lawyer's perspective, one is that when you look at the relationship with the customer, the customer isn't always right. In other words, it's not just that you have a split responsibility to the client and then to the court system or the external world, but even with respect to the client, giving the client what the client wants isn't always doing what's best for the client. And sometimes you have to say no to the client. And when we talk about some of these toxic financial instruments, and we think in terms of subprime lending, and we think about kind of the opaque credit contracts that maybe some people are signing, or when we think in terms of late fees and overdraft fees and so forth, I think a lot of finance professionals would say something like, look, who am I to judge, right? I mean, if the customer wants it, then the customer wants it. Even if you think about like Robinhood, I think the people who founded Robinhood, they thought, hey, we're democratizing finance. We're giving access to people that normally they wouldn't have access to. We're, we know that investing in equities is better than leaving money under the mattress. So we're, we're helping people to do this. And then if it devolves into like the crack cocaine of investing, right? I think people are kind of caught off guard because they think that 
you know, Absolutely. hey, if, if somebody's paying for it, they must want it. It must be good for them. Yeah. And Robinhood is such a great example. I remember over a year ago, I gave a midterm exam to my students and the midterm exam is a research paper. And I asked them to identify an ethical role model. It can be an individual or firm and describe why they're an ethical role model. What are the trade-offs that they face? What are their incentives? So try to provide a, a nuanced perspective on them. And one of the papers came back and it was Robinhood. The founders mm -hmm. of Robinhood, the student argued they're ethical role models because they're trying to democratize finance. And at that point, I wasn't so familiar with Robinhood. And as I read the paper, I thought, hmm, I'd like to look into it myself. Mm -hmm. And of course, when you delve into it, my view was that it was hugely concerning the way they approached it. And the way I think about it is that as you think of your professional mandate, and to your point, it's not just giving to clients anything they want, but it's also promoting the kind of products that you would suggest to members of your family or members of your tribe or people that you actually cared about, right? And so this idea that if you are promoting a product that you would never want your children to buy, for instance, or, or your mother or whoever you really cared about then that's a red flag. And in this case, I'm pretty sure that they wouldn't want necessarily people they really cared about to trade all day and become day traders. And so there's this challenging situation mm -hmm. where on the surface, it's positioned as a force for good. But when you look at the dynamics, it feels very negative to me. And so it's an interesting dichotomy. I want to push back on that standard though, because then it becomes very non-empathetic, right? So your tribe could be very different. I mean, when you think about micro-lending, sure. micro-lending is like whatever, you know, 50% a year interest rates. And you think, well, I would never want my kids to borrow at 50%. But some of these people, the only alternative they have is 300% from the local money lender. Yeah. And, and so like, if you don't understand their context and their position, then- Oh, absolutely, yeah. Right, so how do we engage in thoughtful, fiduciary behavior without being kind of paternalistic and judgmental. I mean, I think about casinos and how casinos convince themselves that they're enhancing the customer experience by allowing you know people gamble longer and longer hours. And this is customer loyalty, right? Should you just shut down your casino and walk away? Or, I mean, how do we reconcile this? It's a tough one. And I think ultimately a great example was the CEO of U.S. Bancorp. So in the run-up to the financial crisis, U.S. Bancorp was one of the very few banks that decided not to go into subprime mortgages. I mean, they did it, but in a very timid way. At board meetings, he would say, I want everyone to review their portfolio of products and to check whether there's any product there mm -hmm. that they would never sell to anyone they cared about. Assuming that, to your point, that person had the same profile and preferences mm -hmm. and interest. And so there's a certain element of self-restraint, I think, that's, mm -hmm. that's necessary. And that's always a challenge because there's a trade-off, right? And the trade-off is going to be short-term profits. But at the same time, that trade-off becomes a little bit less meaningful in terms of narrow self-interest in terms of profit, if you look at it over the longer term, because I mean, for instance, U.S. Bancorp is a great example of a bank that dramatically outperformed all the other banks when you look at it on a long-term basis. So there's an element of self-restraint. There's an element of regulatory safeguards that is critical. And I think the way I approach my topic in the book is by being very clear that it's just one aspect it's not a comprehensive solution mm -hmm. to all the problems that finance has. It's one element, one pressure point, and it's really a mosaic of pressure points that are going to push the industry into a better direction. Should we be thinking differently about maybe say retail products and, and wholesale products, right? So when we think in terms of these usurious credit cards with all sorts of tripwires yeah. that trap people in cycles of debt, versus say the abacus example. Yep. So you, you walk through the abacus example, and this is where Goldman Sachs was essentially brokering a transaction between someone who was shorting subprime mortgages, John Paulson, and the folks who then wound up being sold the opposite side. Every investment bank is going to be selling to both sides, right? How can we evaluate that? Should they be saying, 
we actually think this is going to go down and we have other clients that think it's going to go down. And, and so while you're taking this position, I mean, we focus on the abacus case because it ended up so poorly, but there may be plenty of other examples that wound up going in the opposite direction from the way in which the bankers intended. I mean, if the bankers thought that the housing was going to go up and should they have refused to allow John Paulson to initiate his side of the trade, when we're dealing with sophisticated investors, doesn't the argument that the customer is always right have more credibility? I think you're right in that you can't approach retail and institutional investors in the same way. And even within institutional investors and retail, the level of sophistication is very important in the way you deal with folks. In retail, my sense is that there's so many egregious cases of people taking advantage or firms taking advantage of customers who just don't have much financial knowledge, right? And the ability to understand what products they're buying. You know, I mean, you mentioned the credit cards and there's so many examples of credit cards marketing their most complex products to the least financially literate customers. And of course, these are the higher margin products for them and the ones that more financially literate customers would never agree to, right? And so my sense is that this is where regulation becomes extremely important. Now, on the institutional side, I mean, you mentioned Abacus. Abacus is interesting because it's not, I mean, to your point, there are a lot of other situations that have worked out very well. Of course, there is in some ways a lot of emphasis on Abacus because it's so well documented. There was such a huge congressional inquiry into it. So it's a little bit of a gift for researchers because now you see all the internal emails and like step by step. And so it's a very useful tool and it's one that I use in the class. So we do a three hour case study on Abacus. And it's one where I start with, okay, so here's an individual or a couple and they're buying a, a house. And so they take a mortgage from their local commercial bank and here's what happens to the mortgage. And it's then sold to an investment bank who turns it into residential mortgage backed security. And then it's sold to another one who turns it into a collateralized debt obligation. And then it becomes a synthetic CDO. And what's interesting about this is Every step of the way, we try to analyze the decision-making process of the individuals involved. And it's almost never the case, at least in this particular situation, where you would say, wow, these are awful people. They were trying to extract value. They were trying to fleece someone else, right? They were fairly sophisticated people. It's often the case that we're often well-meaning, but they had a very strong set of incentives and they followed them in a narrow silo, right? They were very focused on their narrow interests without thinking about the ramifications. And it goes to the point that a lot of unethical behavior in the industry is actually not so much bad people, but it's often like good people that are very sophisticated, but that are oblivious to the consequences of their action. And that points to the importance of cognitive biases. And, and I think the industry is particularly fertile grounds for cognitive biases. Now, with Abacus, I think it goes beyond, though, simply, well, it was okay because we're dealing with sophisticated investors. There are a number of angles there where they just failed to be transparent. And it goes to very simple, basic professional guidelines that any investment bank has. You know, I mean, like, for instance, they sold the long side of a CDO to institutional investors. But they did not mention that all the underlying mortgages, or not all of them, but more than 50% of them, had been handpicked by the short seller. And so, of course, there was a, a bias in the portfolio for mortgages that were less likely to succeed. There was also like a clear effort on their part to go after institutional investors that were less knowledgeable about this area and were not going to ask the tough questions. And there was also, again, lack of transparency and, the, and this idea that they implied to their customers on the long side that Goldman was also on their side, which wasn't the case, of course, because they were massively short these subprime mortgages as a firm. So there it's a complex case that has a lot of interesting aspects and nuance. And I come out of it thinking, well, these are not bad people. And in fact, what's fascinating to me is that a lot of the people that you see 
in there have the same background as my students. They might have gone to Princeton. Well, I don't know if they would have taken the ethics and finance, but they are well-meaning individuals. And what's interesting is the bias that you have because of where you sit. And I've had conversations where when you look at some of these case studies, anyone sitting from the outside, it's a little hard to justify their actions. But those from the inside are absolutely gung-ho that it was absolutely fine. Right. And so, and I think ultimately it has to do with all sorts of biases that we have. Well, it's interesting how the bias literature has crept into ethics. I interviewed Max Bazerman and, and of course, John Haight teaches a course at, at NYU. And, and the emphasis is on our psychology and, and how we wind up doing things that we might not recognize ourselves if we were to step outside of ourselves. But, you know, I think there are plenty of people that say, hey, listen, this is a game, right? And the idea is to test the rules. I mean, if you're playing football and you do a head fake in order to get the defender to go left when you go right, like that's not unethical. And if you're engaging in puffery or you're bluffing in a negotiation, that's considered to be part of the game. And so I think a lot of people would challenge this idea if you say, well, you need to think about the long-term consequences or you have to think about it from a utilitarian perspective. You know, it's so complex that it's almost impossible to think through all the different, I mean, the more complex it is, the more you just have to focus on your little silo and your little role, and you've got the rules set out for you, and then you do your job. And, and I think even in the law, we would say that, right? I mean, if you're a lawyer, your job is to defend your client and whether they're guilty or innocent, whatever you think about their guilt or innocence, your job is to just defend that person and trust that the system as a whole will come to the best outcome as long as you play your job. Or if you're the soldier on the hill and you're told to take the hill, you're not supposed to think through, well, how is taking this hill going to impact the overall war effort? You know, you've got to trust at some level that the general has thought this all through and has a grand scheme in mind. If you're just one of the, the soldiers down there on the field, how are you supposed to think through the ultimate impact? I mean, if you're doing a swap, an interest rate swap, I mean, are you supposed to somehow think, well, this is going to have this impact on global welfare? Or do you just say, hey, I'm going to do my job? These are great points. And for the vast majority of what we do in finance, it's hard on a day-to-day -day basis, decision-by-decision -decision basis to make that kind of distinction. In fact, my book is not about decision-making on a day-to-day -day basis. It's much more about how you manage your career over the long term to be virtuous. And I think if you step back today, the industry would, I think everyone in the industry would agree that you should serve your customers well and with their interests in mind. Now, not everybody does this, but the idea of trying to extract value from your customers or fleece your customers, not a lot of people would defend that. And most people, even if you were very cynical, you would look at this and say, well, it's probably not going to be a sustainable strategy, commercial strategy, right? Because over the long term, you're, you're probably not going to do well and it's going to come and, and bite you back. Where I think there's a lot of debate and to your point is, well, if you're serving your customers well, now do you also need to think about the rest of the world? Like, who am I to like opine on what the impact is going to be? And besides, if I'm the junior analyst at Morgan Stanley, who am I to bring this up to the MDs or to the VP? Or, and you're right. I mean, it's tough. And in some ways, I think that over time, we will be more sophisticated about understanding this. This is a nascent field. And, and in some ways, ESG is an important force in pushing us to understand what are the externalities of our everyday decisions. But in my mind today, the most we can do is to figure out the extreme cases in a sense, right? There's this example that I'd like because that's one where there's that clear bifurcation between serving your customers well and extracting value from the rest of the world. It dates back, but in the late 90s and early 2000s, the governments of Italy and Greece came to investment banks and specifically JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs. I don't want to pounce on, that's not the idea at all to like highlight any individual investment bank because there are more proxies for the industry as a whole in this case. And they said, we have a problem in that our level of sovereign debt 
national debt is going to go above the threshold that's mandated by the European Union. Can you help us out? And so the banks came in and they were able to make it so that in the statistics that were reported by Italy and Greece, it showed as if their level of sovereign debt was below that 3% threshold. Now, in reality, they did a lot of financial engineering, and ultimately what they did was really mask the fact that they were above it. They obfuscated. So when you step back, you'll say, well, here's a situation where these investment banks, they really served their customers' interest as the customer defined it, right? Really well. And this is why the client should pay an enormous amount of money to these banks, because it's super rare to have that combination of very sophisticated understanding of regulation very sophisticated financial engineering skill set. So there are only a few firms that could have done that and they did it. So they were successful and big success. Now, if you step back, you would say, well, that can't be great for the rest of the world if what you're doing is you're helping obfuscate how indebted you are. And in fact, you fast forward a few years to 2011 and you have this massive Eurozone crisis that's really a debt crisis because a lot of these countries are too indebted. I'm not suggesting, of course, that the investment banks are responsible for it, but this is one where you would have wanted someone in the higher echelons of the bank say, wait a minute, we don't want to be in the business of doing that, right? So the extreme cases, I think there's an argument for the more pedestrian day-to-day cases, there's a lot of that you can do even at junior levels, but it's not necessarily to lead your personal vendetta, I would argue. If you're the first year analyst at JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs, I'm not advocating my students that you should lead the revolution from day one because it's probably not going to be effective. There are all sorts of other things you can do as a first year analyst that are going to be helpful and consistent with your values, but not necessarily like trying to wage warfare. You reference greenwash and greenwashing in the book. And one of the cognitive biases that we have is, is our ability to describe to ourselves virtually anything we do in a positive light. And so even these bankers who helped Greece avoid the debt limits, they could presumably have convinced themselves, hey, we helped this country to avoid austerity, right? Hey, if we didn't do this, they would have to create a recession and they'd have to have a bunch of unemployed people and it would be a disaster. So we're, we're going to buy them some more time to kind of get their house in order. I, how do you prevent yourself from falling into these traps where you just select your benchmark, select the one that makes you look best, right? I mean, this seems to be a natural human tendency. Yeah. And I guess the broader question is, how do you try to prevent these cognitive biases from creeping into all your decisions? And you mentioned Max Bajerman. He's one of the folks that I've read the most closely over the years. I've assigned blind spots in my mm-hmm. class for the last 12 years. I think it's a fantastic book. In fact, I, I listened to the podcast you had with him recently, which I thought was great. So the question is, what do you do about it? I think there are steps that you can take. And in fact, I think this is the next kind of stage of my research is to try and understand how do you implement these things internally. But one thing you can do, so say if you're facing that decision at Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan about Greece, I think checklists would be an interesting concept to develop more widely in the industry. I was really inspired by what Atul Gawande has done Mm -hmm. in medicine. And as you probably know, he's been instrumental in having surgeons adopt these simple checklists. And it's had an enormous impact, apparently, on medicine and surgery. And of course, in finance, it wouldn't be as clear-cut because there's more nuance probably to it. But I suspect that if we had a systematic policy of having checklists for decisions that are above a certain threshold of materiality. Mm -hmm. The important thing is also to write it down. And I think that makes a big difference because there are a lot of things that you can justify to yourself and to your colleagues by not really discussing them and by not really laying them out on paper. And you become kind of lazy and you take intellectual shortcuts. And that allows you to really not think about externalities or consequences. But if you had checklists and and you actually had to write down what you think the impact of that decision is going to be on this stakeholder and this stakeholder and this stakeholder, I think that could be a force for good. At a minimum, I suspect it would help weed out some of the worst decisions that banks might have to do. Now, of course, there are big trade-offs, right? 
the clear trade-off here is you're introducing bureaucracy. That's a challenge. The other thing that I think is helpful with cognitive biases is because it's so ingrained in the way you think about things and the way your group thinks about it, and it's so determined by where you sit, having external advisory boards review certain decisions in a way that can be separate from your everyday processes, that can be very helpful mm -hmm. too. But again, big trade-off because you're introducing bureaucracy now. But I think there are ways to do that. Yeah, ethical bureaucracy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think there are analogs here between risk and compliance, right? So, you know, we have chief risk officers or chief compliance officers, and they're focused on the illegal aspects yeah. of things. Would we need something kind of similar to that? Those folks have their own challenges. And when times are good, they yeah. generally get kind of pushed further and further down in the bottom of the organization. But isn't it more than that? I mean, when I think about branding, a really effective branding philosophy within a company is not simply about having a chief marketing officer create a marketing campaign. It's about every single thing that the company does has to be on brand, right? And so if you create a kind of an ethical framework, it has to be reinforced at a peer level. It can't simply be that there's this person up oh, there absolutely. at the top of the hierarchy, right? So how do you create that? And you've highlighted a number of examples of individuals that have demonstrated ethical leadership. But I think one of the things that they've done is they've created organizations where this culture of ethics pervades every aspect of the organization. Yeah. And I think ultimately, I mean, it has to come from the top because the top has to model that behavior because there's a vast difference between the code of conducts and the business conducts that are adopted officially and the actual behavior internally. And what individuals are going to model is what their bosses are doing, right? So it's one, it's the emulation is critical, modeling your behavior against folks that are above you and who are really there to assess your own performance. Mm -hmm. And also the way people are rewarded and incented. And, and you see if, if people who cut ethical corners manage to do it in a way that's successful internally and are rewarded for it, then it makes no sense to talk about like any kind of business code, ethical code, because that's going to trump anything else, right? John Whitehead, who was the co-senior partner of Goldman Sachs in the mid-1970s to the mid-1980s, was a big proponent of that. And of course, he introduced the code at Goldman Sachs, which was a model for a lot of the industry back then. But it was also, I think, supported, and it, it was really buffered by the fact that John Whitehead and John Weinberg at the top and all the, the senior partners were modeling that behavior and they were strict in terms of doing more than slapping the wrist of those who cut ethical mm -hmm. corners. My sense is that there might've been some erosion of that over the years, but it's so critical that those on top are able to model that behavior because everything else is meaningless. I think he's the one that talked about long-term greedy, yeah, right? As opposed to, to short-term greedy. And a lot of people are attracted to this idea that Hey, ethical behavior pays off in the long run, right? Whether at the institutional level or the individual level, and you reference Adam Grant's work, and this offers up a really attractive proposition. It's a Panglossian world. And when my students are asked to choose between higher economic payoffs and ethical outcomes, my students will always respond by saying, well, why not have both, right? <laughs> like, you know, it's yeah. like, wait, hold on. That would be great if there were no trade-offs, but I think the Aristotelian perspective that you emphasize in the book suggests that, look, there's always going to be trade-offs, right? And that being ethical is not necessarily a guarantee that you're going to maximize right. your economic performance, that you have to ultimately make difficult choices. And I think there's a tendency for people to try to avoid having to make difficult choices. And, and the way they do that is through some kind of cognitive dissonance. That's a critical point in my mind. I wish I could have written the book about how to be more ethical and more financially successful and how they're entirely consistent. But I don't believe that to be the case because a lot of our world is still driven by short-term performance, short-term incentives. And until we remove those structures and those incentives, you have to live in the world that we're in. And so that means that in some cases, not all of them, but in some cases, there are gonna be trade-offs. And that's why to me, when I looked for ethical role models to document and to understand better and to analyze, 
I wanted to find people who were self-interested because people don't necessarily relate to altruism. Mm -hmm. So self-interested, ambitious and successful, but successful in their own ways. So some of them were successful in traditional ways, but others, they're successful because for them, being happy is also living the good life. And living the good life is about contributing to the world. And, and so it's important to not necessarily assume that there are going to be no trade-offs because there are trade-offs. Mm -hmm. Well, one option that's often proposed is, hey, listen, if you want to make the biggest impact in the world, why not just go and get as rich as you can? And if that means ripping off customers and employees, whatever, just do what you got to do. And then you can give all this money to charity, right? Isn't that yeah. sort of a better way of making an impact than refraining from playing this game and becoming a school teacher? Isn't the best way to make a big impact is to get filthy rich and then create a foundation? I think that right. this is the focus of the fourth part of your book. Yeah. So this is interesting because there's a, a fascinating score of thought you're familiar with, of course, because I, I've heard it discussed in, in some of your recent podcasts, but effective altruism. And of course, Peter Singer is an important core of it, but Will McCaskill is an Oxford philosopher that I've hosted in my class a number of times. And he wrote a fascinating paper in 2011, 2012. And his argument is incredibly provocative and seductive, which is if you want to do the most good in the world, you shouldn't work for Teach for America. You should work for Goldman Sachs, right? But what you do is, so the original argument was you live like a grad student and whatever excess. That's pretty hard to do. Yeah. So there's a practical aspect, which is hard. <laughs> One of the things I was worried about when I had the opportunity to go work in investment banking, when I was coming to the end of my grad student days, I was concerned that so many of my friends who had gone on to work in investment banking were complaining that they couldn't afford the, the mortgage on their vacation home and stuff. And I was like, wow, that doesn't seem, do I really want to, yeah. you know, how do you prevent the norms of the industry from changing who you are? It's kind of hard to live like a grad student when your colleagues are not. Yeah, it's actually, it goes beyond that. It's not necessarily changing who you are as much as changing everything about who you are at that stage in your life. If you have a family, then you can't live where everyone else lives. And so there's a trade-off that's going to affect your family, whether you go to public school, private school, and so on. But it's an enormously seductive argument. And in fact, so we, in my ethics course, we do a whole session on the ethics of career choice. Mm -hmm. There are career choices that are more ethical than others. And ultimately, even though the argument is extremely seductive, I haven't bought in the argument because I do think that as individuals, we're driven by our passions and our mm -hmm. interests and our preferences. And I, I do think that those that want to do the most good in the world are just not going to be very effective working at Goldman Sachs. And I also think that there's a practical element to it, which is it's incredibly hard to actually implement consistently over the years. Now, this being said, the effective altruism movement has introduced a lot of nuance to their argument over the years since that original paper. But it's still the case that I, I do think that if you want to do good in the world and you want to be a nurse, there's nothing, very few people can do more good than a nurse. And so for me, my heart sinks when at the end of a semester, a student comes to me and says, I love your course on ethics and finance. I wanted to be a doctor. Now I want to be in finance. And this is absolutely not what I, I'm trying to advocate for or suggesting. But for those who are going to finance, they can have a huge amount of impact because finance is so pervasive to our society. And in some ways, the ethical role models that I write about, they're not heroic for the most part. It's nothing like the nurses and the doctors that have taken care of us during the pandemic or the frontline workers that held the fort during the pandemic. It's much more pedestrian but it has a huge impact on society. So I want to ask you about ESG. This is something which I spend a lot of time working in this area with. I work with pension funds and we run programs and sessions and seminars on, on the topic. And I've always been a little puzzled by the idea that the best way to make the impact is through, say, shareholder activism as opposed to participation in the political process. Because if we think about, you know, we, we want to move past carbon. And so we use shareholder democracy to try to get companies to change their behavior. But wouldn't it 
just be so much easier and more effective to say, have a carbon tax, right? I mean, if we're able to make that kind of impact on a company, shouldn't we be able to make a similar impact in the political process? Yeah. Or when we think about, say, Google, the Google is refusing to help the U.S. military. I mean, the majority of the American people have decided that they want to have a military, right? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. isn't it profoundly anti-democratic to refuse to help the American military? I mean, if we're trying to do the greatest good for the greatest number, shouldn't we respect what the majority of the people have actually said that they want, right? How do we reconcile this? Yeah, but in a way, and, and maybe I misunderstood the question a little bit, but I don't see it as antithetical. So we do a fair amount of shareholder activism, constructive activism, mm -hmm. so it tends to be very friendly longer term. And in my mind, it's a real force for good in the sense that we can help the companies become more productive. We can improve the governance. We can potentially improve their ESG performance. So there are all sorts of things that we can improve at the company level, which has, my belief, all sorts of positive ramifications on corporate sector, on the economy, and so on. At the same time, if you ask me, what's the hierarchy of tools to make society better? I would put regulation before mm -hmm. shareholder activism, but I don't see them as being in opposition because it's not like I do shareholder activism, but I oppose regulation. I actually support yeah. more thoughtful regulation at the same time and carbon tax. And there are all sorts of ways in which you could improve the current approach to the environment. So I, I don't see them as being in opposition. I see them as part of that kind of like mosaic of pressure point. Yeah. So I want to ask you about culture because at the end of the day, you mentioned in the book that you can't avoid incentives, right? Incentives are what drive things and you can have an overlay of, of ethics and you can have an overlay of the promotion of virtue and pure norms. But at the end of the day, incentives are going to be very, very powerful. And so when organizations state an interest in protecting their customers, protecting their employees, doing good for the world, but the incentives are driving their individuals in opposite directions, it's going to be difficult to maintain. And I've been affiliated with organizations that talk a good game, but you know, you look around and you see that the people who are getting ahead are the assholes, right? Yeah. Yeah. This is a fascinating concept, uh, depressing concept, but yes. Right. So if you're within an organization that believes very strongly in, in the promotion of virtue, how do you make this contagious? As a leader, I think it's probably easier if you have a mandate, but if you're not in, in a leadership position, maybe you're aspiring to a leadership position, how do you promote this idea of, of virtue in all of its different facets? There are different ways to do it. If you think of the toolkit, certainly the one that would have the most impact is revising your incentives and you can revise them. You can revise how you compensate people by introducing some ESG components in a sense to your compensation. But there's also things that could help the culture that you can introduce in your incentives. For instance, the way in which you're helpful to your colleagues and to people on your team you could reward followership internally. And there might be ways in which you can measure that. So I worked in McKinsey for five years, and that was something that was very high on the list. Now, of course, it's incredibly hard to get right because as much as I have an incredible amount of respect for McKinsey, for instance, and in fact, I write about some of the things that I think are wonderful about its culture and the way it assesses performance and so on in the book, we've seen scandals recently, right, coming out of McKinsey that have tarnished its reputation. So, I mean, that goes to say that it's incredibly hard to get right. So I would say financial incentives, the way people are promoted, the more you promote people that I think exhibit the kind of behavior that you want to model and that is about contributing to the broader society, the more everyone else is going to want to do the same thing, right? And in addition to that, as I mentioned, I think checklists could be a force for good as well. Another example was uh, Wells Fargo, and, and you mentioned how yeah. the CEO had a very positive reputation for integrity and, and yet presided over this super corrupt <laughs> incentive system. Yeah, this is a great example because it comes from a good place. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I feel I was part of it. I never served Wells Fargo when I was in management consulting, but I served in the other banks. And I remember that was at a time when value-based management was the rage. 
And what we did is we would go in inside these banks and we would say, okay, what's the ultimate goal? Well, the ultimate goal is to raise the share price over a long term. And so how can we model behavior internally so that everything is tied to that, right? And so there's an appealing elegance to managing an organization along these lines. And you can do it in a way that's very analytical. It's incredibly disciplined. And this is what Wells Fargo did. But of course, if you do it in a way where your focus on it is so intense and siloed and you don't step out of your shoes and think about, well, what are the unintended consequences of this? You get a situation where you have millions and millions of fake accounts that were created in order to reach goals. And it goes back to an incentive system that had gone out of control and was in the end, incredibly engineered, but not thoughtful. Yeah, well, I think it gets back to this idea of serving the shareholder like serving the customer. The shareholder isn't always right. And the share price response in the short run is motivated by actors that may not have complete visibility into, you know, what's actually happening. And so just like a doctor needs to know exactly what they're giving to the patient, the manager needs to understand what they're giving to the shareholder and what the impact is going to be in the long run. Yeah, and also I I think if you're managing a company... There is a discussion we had around, well, do you, do you manage with a view that you're going to cater to those who are playing the quarter versus the longer term shareholders, mm-hmm. the asset managers that might have invested in you with a five to 10 year view? And are you able and willing to take the short term volatility by doing the right thing, even though it's going to disappoint a subset of investors that and hedge funds that might have a disproportionate impact in the short term? Well, JC, I think this course that you offer is fascinating. I think business schools should certainly start thinking about how they can offer a, a vision of the good life to their students. I think we kind of nip around the edges without explicitly talking about what it means to live the good life. But I think this is something that should be part of our curriculum. I think it, it would be crazy that you could spend two years, say, in an MBA program and not have to seriously address why you're alive and why you're living and what what are you doing and how does it align with your ultimate objectives. So I think this is a fantastic vision that you've offered. I definitely recommend the book, Seeking Virtue in Finance, Contributing to Society in a Conflicted Industry. And I hope that you will write some more. Great. Well, thanks so much, Greg. I really enjoyed this. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. Mm-hmm.